now we're going to do the most important thing that we do here at Soul Revival, which is read from the Bible. If uh, you'd like to follow along, uh, we're looking at Luke uh, and chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to add my welcome to you all tonight, those of us who are here in the factory at Kirawee and those of us who are online. We're excited to start a new series tonight as we get ready for Christmas. And in fact, this series is going to go right across the Christmas period as well. Because what we're going to do this Christmas is we're going to look at the different titles or the names given to Jesus. Because all the titles that are given to Jesus, like we've heard tonight, the Messiah, actually help us to understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Now, before we dive into that tonight, looking at Luke... Um, I just wanted to, to think a little bit about why we call people names. Now, I thought it'd be fun to look up the most popular newborn names in 2020. I wondered if COVID was going to influence the names at all, if there was going to be any COVID names like Son of Despair 
or Daughter of Desperation. Wondered if any of those names would pop up in the list. They didn't, which is good. Uh, the top 10 boys and girls' names, however, I've got for you here tonight, and we're going to throw them up on the screen. So what we've got is the top 10 girl names for 2020, and you'll be pleased to find out they're all lovely. So we've got Charlotte, Olivia, Amelia, Isla. Is that right? Did I say that? Isla? Isla, my apologies. Isla, Mia, Ava, Grace, Willow, Harper and Chloe. They're all very lovely names. Top 10, 2020. Boys' names, let's have a look. Olivia, Noah, there's a Noah, I'm looking straight up down the guts of the church and seeing another Noah over there, you're number two mate, still number two top names, uh, Jack, William, Leo, Lucas, Thomas, Henry, Charlie and James, there you go, top names for 2020. Now I think choosing a child's name is one of the funnest parts of having a child. Um, in our own family, we, our first child Ethan, we picked that name before Ethan was born and our second child, Elijah, we picked that about a week after Elijah was born. It took us a little while to work out what we we're going to call Elijah. And the nurse came in one day and said, you have to name this baby. We're sick of calling it Baby Crawshaw. He needs a name. Now, it might not have been a week, but that was my memory. It's a long time ago. But we were very excited about both our boys' names. Now, why do you call a child a name? Uh, well, most of the time in our culture in Australia, we just like a name. And so we call the child a name. But in many countries around the world, and particularly in the past, a name carries a lot more meaning. Uh, obviously, some of these names will have meanings to the parents that have chosen these names. Uh, but particularly in biblical times, you wouldn't actually name someone just because you liked a name. They actually needed to have a purpose behind the name. And that's not completely foreign to us today. Uh, some of our friends that you saw on the video here uh, just a minute ago, one of uh, my friends on the videos is a man named Kyle. He's a Bunjalung man and he named his children Bunjalung names as did uh, his brothers and sisters in his family, in the Slab family. Uh, one of his sons he called Bunam and Bunam is a Bunjalung name meaning second son. So his second son he named Bunam. So that name has meaning. But that's more than just uh, naming your son as your second son. A banam is someone who is actually to support the elder brother and the others in the family. And so Kyle shared with me that that meaning has a lot of depth. And so that's lovely, isn't it? If you've got a, a name for your child that means something, then that's really special. And so it is with Jesus. When Jesus uh, was conceived, we uh, know the beautiful, unique reality that Jesus' mother Mary uh, was... was um, um, uh, she, she came, uh, an angel came to visit her and, she, and the angel said to Mary, in, actually in Luke chapter 1 verse 30 to 33, which we have, which we might throw up on the screen, Luke chapter 1 verse 30 to 33, the angel said to Mary when uh, she was pregnant with Jesus, the angel said to her, do not be afraid Mary because you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That was a wonderful prophecy from that angel because basically Jesus was going to be born. He was going to be born fully man and fully God because his father is God himself, the Lord Most High. So he'll be called in verse 31, the son of the Most High. So Jesus' name is actually a very, very important name. And it's not just uh, a name that sounded good. In fact, Jesus' name came from the name Joshua, 
which means in Hebrew, he will save. And so Jesus is going to be born as a child with a mission and his name is going to indicate to us what he has come to do. Now in Luke chapter 2 verse 11, it says this, Luke goes on in his telling of the story and he says, Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now this is going to be our key verse for tonight to unpack our topic tonight because we're going to hone in on that title of Jesus. Just like people are given names that mean things, our titles also give us meaning, don't they? Now again in Australia, we don't really go for titles in a big way, do we? Um, in recent times, you know, we, we try and be a bit more relaxed and use first-person names as much as we can. But those of you who are my vintage or older will remember that growing up, when you went round to your friend's place, you didn't just call your friend's parents by their first name, because that would have been rude. You called them by their title. So I would go round to Anthony Sell's place, and I wouldn't call his mother Dorothy. Oh, hey, Dorothy, how you going? I'd say, oh, Mrs. Sell, is it all right if I come round and see Anthony? Uh, in my generation, my son's friends, they call me Stu, and that's fine too. But we have in our past taken titles a lot more seriously. And again, if you go all the way back into Bible times, titles were incredibly important. So the word Messiah is one of the titles that is given to Jesus. And the title is a very ancient title, and it's actually a very exciting title. So we're going to have a look at that tonight as we unpack what does it mean in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, that Jesus is a Messiah. Well, a good place to start in our investigation tonight is to look back into the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Messiah occurs 39 times in the Old Testament. And it basically means the anointed one. Again, that's a word we don't often use. Hi, how are you going? Oh, good, I've just got anointed today. To, you know, or, oh, how did your anointment go last week? You know, we don't often use that in everyday language. What is an anointment? What is it to be anointed? Well, in the Old Testament, if someone was to be anointed, often they had oil poured on them, on their head, and the oil would run down into their beards and into their clothes, and the oil would actually be a symbol of the fact that they have been set aside for a special purpose. And the special purpose that the anointed one would be set aside to do is to serve God. So an anointed person is to serve God. And the word Messiah means the anointed one. So we're going to look at that in just a minute. But before we do, there are other groups of people who were anointed in the Old Testament. So if we were to look at as, uh, uh, Exodus 28:41, we'd see that priests were anointed in the people of Israel. They were set aside to serve God, the priests. So this is what it says in Exodus 28:41. After you put on these clothes on you, your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. So there you have a priest anointed. Why? Because a priest is set aside, like Aaron, the first priest, was set aside in the people of Israel to serve God. And that was his role. But it wasn't just priests who were anointed to serve. There was also prophets. In 1 Kings 19, 16, we read this. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimish, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, and Abel, Meliah, to succeed you as prophet. So here we see that prophets were also anointed. What is the difference between a priest and a prophet? Well, a prophet was one who was speaking on behalf of God. 
So you can see the importance of anointing the prophet, can't you? Because if someone's going to serve God and speak for God exclusively, they need to be set aside and anointed for that task. You can't just have someone pop up and go, oh, I'll be a priest, I'll be a prophet. They have to be anointed and set aside, you see, in the Old Testament. But it's not only priests and prophets who are anointed. It's also kings. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, this is what we read. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. So here we uh, pick up the story that when the people of Israel come to a period in their history where they have kings, first they had Saul, then they had David. Well, the kings were anointed with oil. And when David was anointed with oil, the, the, the priests would have poured oil on his head and the oil would have run down his face. Lots of olive oil. You just imagine that beautiful olive oil running into his eyes, over his face. It was meant to be a beautiful symbol of the fact that this man was set aside to be a king. Well, what is a Messiah other than uh, priest or prophet or king? Because the word Messiah keeps coming up as an anointed one in the Old Testament too. Well, the idea of an anointed Messiah is that the Messiah is, supposed, is going to be one who serves God, one who is coming, who is going to be the greatest leader that Israel's ever had, the Messiah. So the Messiah is going to be the greatest priest that Israel's ever had, the greatest prophet that Israel's ever had, and the greatest king that Israel's ever had. So the, the title of Messiah is that as these other leaders of Israel have been appointed in their due time, in their generation to serve the Lord and be set apart, one leader will come who will embrace all those three roles and will actually be the greatest leader that Israel's ever had. Now in Psalm 45 verse 7, this is what we read about the coming of the Messiah. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So just as the other leaders were anointed for a specific leadership task, this Messiah who will come will be the greatest. He will love righteousness, he will hate wickedness, and God will set him above his companions, in other words, all the other leaders of Israel. He'll be the greatest. This one's talking about the greatest anointed one, the great Messiah. So who is this Messiah? Have a guess. If you haven't guessed already... It's going to get clearer every day we get closer to Christmas. Obviously, this Christmas Day, we are celebrating, as we do each year, the coming of the greatest leader the world has ever seen, Jesus Christ. And interestingly, Jesus Christ is actually translated Jesus the Messiah because the word Christ, when you hear Jesus described as the Christ, well, the word Christ is the Greek word translated of Messiah. So if a Greek-speaking person, which was common in the New Testament, Old Testament speaking was Hebrew, Hebrew is called the coming great leader, the anointed leader, the Messiah, well, the, the Greek-speaking people translated Messiah into their language as Christ. So it's actually quite rare in the New Testament to call the Messiah the Messiah. It does happen in our passage tonight, and it also happens in John chapter 1, verse 41. It also happens in John chapter 4, verse 25. But most of the times Jesus referred to in the New Testament, he's called Jesus the Christ, not Jesus the Messiah. 
But it's the same thing, exactly the same thing, the Messiah. Now, some people say to me, particularly when I've done scripture in high school, oh, is Christ Jesus' surname? Is it like uh, Stuart Crawshaw and Jesus Christ? No. Jesus Christ is, Christ is his title. Jesus is his name and Christ is his title. And even though as Australians, we might not put a lot of meaning on all our children's names, and even as Australians, even though we might not put a lot of meaning into the title given to someone, we cannot miss the importance of Jesus' name and his title. It is meant to be revered. Unfortunately, in our culture, unfortunately in our culture, Jesus Christ has become a swear word not a designation to the great Messiah that has been promised in the Old Testament. But let me leave that for another time. Because what today should give us is a very clear perspective on why his name is so precious and why we are not meant to take his name in vain. Let's have a look at when the Messiah was first promised to show you how important his title, the Messiah or the Christ, is. The first great promise of the coming of the great leader, the Messiah, is in Genesis. So when we see the Messiah in the Old Testament, we start by looking at the very beginning of the fall of human beings. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In verse 15, this is what God said to Adam and Eve after they took the fruit off the tree and sinned against him. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is a vague prophecy. But the prophecy here is a promise to Adam and Eve that the wrong that they have done that has been inspired by the Satan who tricked them will be righted by one who will come, who will be so powerful that he'll be able to crush the serpent's head. In other words, tread on the head of Satan. And if we jump ahead in the story, we see that on the cross, Jesus was killed, wasn't he? He let death and sin destroy his human body. But we know that he rose from the dead three days later. It's as if the serpent struck his heel on the cross and yet he crushed his head when he came out of the grave and won victory. So this great serpent crusher is the first prophecy that points us to the coming of this great leader that tonight we're calling the Messiah. In every generation in the Old Testament, they are waiting for the coming of the serpent crusher. Who is going to stamp on Satan's head and destroy him? Who is going to crush Satan? Well, Abraham comes, Moses comes, Joshua comes. Each of them were great leaders, but each of them, like all of us human beings, were flawed leaders. So the people of Israel continued to hold their breath over the centuries as each leader would come and would go. During the time of the judges, the people of Israel suffered under some terrible leaders as well as having some good leaders too. But again, time and time again, their leaders were shown wanting. They called out to God for a king like the other nations. And God warned them and said, no, I should be your king. You should not have another king because they will not do anything but lead you astray. However, God did give them a king. The first king, Saul, was anointed and set aside as a king. And he was a terrible king. David was anointed and set aside, and even though he sinned and was not the serpent crusher, we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, a very exciting prophecy to show how this king will be used to bring about the Messiah. 
Verse 16, your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, David's house had its ups and downs. His son Solomon came and took over after David. And Solomon, after his great reign where he established the temple on Mount Zion, things just went from bad to worse. While Israel did continue to have good prophets and some good priests and some good kings, they also had terrible people who called themselves prophets who were no prophets at all. They had terrible priests who were actually looking to afflict the people and just take advantage of them. And they had kings that only wanted to store up for themselves riches and pleasure at the expense of the people. And so because of the people of Israel's constant struggle with bad leadership and because of their rebellion against God, how they continued to go after foreign gods, even though Joshua warned them not to, the people of Israel suffered the great indignity and shame of being taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. The Jews, the people of Judah, were taken into captivity. And during this time, this heightened the awareness of the prophets as they considered this promise of Messiah. Never before in Israel's history, in, in the Jewish history, was the Messiah so needed as it was now. In Isaiah 54, verse 1, we read this. Isaiah the great prophet says this, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue the nations before him and to strip the kings of their armour, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. Now, Isaiah is pointing to an earthly king called Cyrus who was the king of the Assyrians. And God would use this Assyrian king to come and wipe out the Babylonians so that the people could go back to Jerusalem. And so in that way, Cyrus was anointed by the Lord and was a kind of Messiah, one who would come to save his people. However, he was not even a man of God. But if you look at what Cyrus did for the people, bringing them back to Jerusalem, there's a shadow of how the true Messiah will exercise his priestly duty, his prophetic duty, and his kingly duty as the anointed one of God. He will deliver his people to the new Jerusalem. How exciting is that? Well, Daniel, also a prophet of this exile, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 to 26, he says this, No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there'll be seven, set, uh, there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with the streets and a trench. But in times of trouble, after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will not come, who, sorry, who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and the desolations have been decreed. Now, we don't have time to dive deeply into this today. We have looked at this earlier in the year. And one of the reasons I've picked uh, some references to Joshua and Daniel today is because that's what we've been looking at this year as we've been going through the Old Testament. But here, as we heard in the series about Daniel, the people are looking for this great Messiah to come. And the anointed one is mentioned here in verse 26, the Messiah. And he will be put to death and will have nothing. Isn't that interesting? So what you see in all these prophecies and all this waiting for the serpent crusher is a very vague prophecy starts to take shape throughout the Old Testament. 
And by the time of Daniel, you start to see that there's this strange prophecy that the Messiah, the anointed one, needs to be destroyed. And then there'll be a time of desolation. Well, we know Jesus was executed on a cross. And then he rose from the dead. And he called on people to trust in him so that they could go to the new Jerusalem. And the old Jerusalem would be destroyed. Remember, Jesus himself prophesied that. He said, there will come a time where you will run to the hills and want the caves and the mountains to, to just hide you from the coming uh, wrath. He was talking about AD 72, when the great war between uh, the Jews and the Romans led to the complete destruction of the temple mount, completely. So we see that this prophecy starts building and building. In Psalm 132, verse 17, we read this, Here I will take a horn, uh, sorry, Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. So what seems to be painted here is while there's chaos and all sorts of terrible, terrible injustices happening in human history, there's this thread of a promise that continues to go through every generation. Despite the fact that in every earthly generation of the leaders of Israel, there are people who fail and fail again, there will come one who will not fail, and he will come from the house of David. Again in Isaiah 45, 21, we read this, Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. So there is but one lifeline for the human race, not just for the Jews. God himself calls himself a saviour. So this anointed one, this, this greatest uh, anointed leader of Israel will save the people of Israel and more. Now other prophets talked about this too, for example Amos. And in Acts 15, when, when Paul is preaching, he quotes Amos to show that Jesus is this coming Messiah. Let me read to you from Acts 15, 16 to 18. After this, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So despite the desolation of 72 AD, despite the... The, 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 the false starts of the people of Israel where they just couldn't produce a leader that lived up to this great ideal of the serpent crusher. God himself becomes a man. And he restores and rebuilds David's fallen tent there in verse 16, rebuilds the ruins and restores the ruins, not just for the people of Israel, but for every human being around the world. That is why his name is so great. To understand the Messiah is to understand he is coming as the anointed priest and prophet and king to save all of us. All this in verse 18 was promised long ago. So coming back to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's story, Jesus' role of Messiah is linked to the purpose of the whole of his Gospel. To understand the story of Jesus in Luke is to read it as the story of the serpent crusher. And the same is true for Matthew, Mark and John as well. But particularly in Luke, not only in the Gospel, but also in the book of Acts that Luke wrote as well. He wants to show that the message that's rooted in Hebrew scriptures from the beginning is good news for all people. In the, in the narrative, the birth narrative that Luke has, that we had read tonight, just like Matthew's, 
confirms that Jesus is the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed one, in chapter 2, verse 26. The Messiah who came to fulfill the promises made to David. We read about that in chapter 1, verses 32 to 35. Yet this is much more than a message just for Jewish nationalism. All along it was part of God's plan that the Messiah would be the light of revelation to the Gentiles as well. And in Luke chapter 2, 32, that is exactly what Luke celebrates. And again in Acts 13, 47, Luke celebrates this. And it's echoing the great prophecies of Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6. Now if you're not getting all these verses, I know some of you take notes and want to write these down so you can look later. If you do want to come and get these verses off me later, I can give them to you. But the big picture here for us tonight is that the message of salvation would go forth from Jerusalem to all the ends of the earth. This is the power of the Messiah. He is the greatest king in human history. And in fact, he rules the universe. This is the serpent crusher. His power is boundless. There is no limit to his power. And that's why we should honour his name. We respect his name and we respect his title because it has deep meaning for all of us. Because outside of the name of Jesus Christ, none of us can be saved. He is the only way that we can live. He himself says in John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. So you and I can spend our whole lives on this earth making ourselves as happy as we can. But unless we put our trust in the anointed one of God, we have no hope in eternity at all. And our life on earth is completely useless. What use is our life if all that happens is we live and we die? We come from the dust and we go back to the dust. Like the grass of the field, we grow and flourish in our youth and produce flowers and, and, and have a season of plenty, but then wither and die within such a moment. How can we as human beings so be so proud as to use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a swear word? It is a wonderful thing that we trust him. Because in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, this is what the Bible says. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. In Ephesians chapter 1 to finish in verse 20 to 21, this is what Paul says. He he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, is now seated in the heavenly realms next to his heavenly Father, ruling the universe. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present name, but also in the one to come. Isn't that wonderful? The name of Jesus is above all names. That's what we sang tonight. The name of Jesus is above all names. Can I encourage us tonight not to neglect following this great Lord who is so great and yet so loves you so much. He loved you so much that he was willing to leave his power and authority and his splendor in heaven to live on earth with us and die such a horrible death because he loves you so much because he knows the only way that you can go to be with God is if your sin is paid for. So often we live for the now. We live for pleasure. And often we put pleasure in front of 
the wonderful, beautiful joy that we can have from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 again, he has far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and that every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. If you want to have a hope of eternity, to live beyond these 70 to 80 years that we'll have here on earth, if you want to live to 70 to 80,000 years, you can trust in this great Messiah, this great anointed prophet, priest and king who loves you and wants you so, so much to put your trust and faith in him as he calls you and calls you again tonight. And for those of us who are Christians here tonight already, who've already trusted in the Lord, be encouraged that your leader will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. No matter what you go through in this world, he is the way to the Father. Be encouraged tonight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for this wonderful message about Jesus the Christ. We ask, Father, at this Christmas time that we would have a new, fresh revelation of the wonder that it is that the Messiah has come and that he has come to save us as well as the Jews. That all the Gentiles, all the Jews can enjoy the wonderful gift of eternal life because of the triumph of the Messiah. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.